At what point is it okay to go against authority? Is it when you don't like how things are being done? Or is it just when things become an issue of life or death? When is it appropriate to ignore your superiors for the sake of your own good? It's the life of man from down which answers these questions for us. This is his story. In the Banbridge town in the county down, in 1796, a man was born. His name was Francis Crozier. He came from a well-off family and his father was an attorney at law. They owned the biggest house in the small town. Francis was educated locally, but being the 11th child of 13 and the 5th son, Francis's life was destined to be spent away from the home. Any inheritance he might have received from his wealthy father would have been diluted and divided amongst his brothers and sisters and his brothers had already shown an interest in the family business. This meant Francis would have to look elsewhere for his employment in later life. From an early age, Francis showed he was a man of action. At age just 13 years old, he turned his back on education to volunteer in a role in the Royal Navy in Cork. He saw this as an opportunity to see the world. The promise of joining the Navy was you would get to visit far off lands, see strange people, experience cultures closed off to the rest of the world and have adventures, sing songs and if you were lucky have stories told about you. In 1810 he was assigned his first duties at sea as he worked a lowly position on the HMS Hamadrat. This sent him directly into the centre of the Napoleonic Wars. At his young age, he was tasked with preparing the guns before setting into battle. In the war, he watched as ships across the way from him would explode into great flames. It was a tremendous welcome into Navy life. He served on the ship for about two years, learning much about life at sea and getting a stronger stomach for the explosive waves they would meet out at sea. Francis worked extremely hard on board and worked his way up through the ranks always showing he had a great physical and mental strength, tremendous determination and a keen willingness to learn. For someone who had no experience of the ocean prior to joining the Navy, his superior officers were very impressed with the strides he was making in the early days of his career. These officers would often make reference to the young Irish boy and how he was doing the work of three or four men and would mention the great asset he was to the Navy's efforts. In 1812, he was part of an extensive voyage which took him from the ports of Liverpool to the South Pacific Islands. Here, he encountered the men of the Bounty Mutiny. A mutiny where the ship hands overthrew their captains in order to remain living on the South Pacific Islands. He marvelled at the stories of their adventures, but was horrified that they had caused the mutiny. The experience left him confused as to what men would do for their own benefit. Again on this voyage, he was noted as a tremendous worker and his name began to be mentioned as a potential captain in the Navy at a later point in his life, should his progress continue to grow so well. In 1817, he was promoted to the position of mate and continued to explore the known world. Seeing all its wonders on land and experiencing the unique views of continents from sea, he watched whales and dolphins dance in the waves trailing his ship. He saw sharks visit the side of his ship, investigating what it might be. He caught fish in great nets and cooked them over open fires, under stars, on the white sandy beaches along the coasts of South Africa, Madagascar, Sri Lanka and the Philippines. 
The vision he had for what life might be in the Navy was coming true. He had no intention of letting his life slow down. Unfortunately, as he rose through the ranks, the wars in Europe began to quieten down and France's chances of further promotion began to dwindle. There was not enough work for those who were already officers in the Navy, and many of them were placed on half pay. Then came a very unique opportunity for the young Irishman. The Navy began to reposition itself as the explorers of the world. They were to explore the parts of the world man had not stepped on yet. They were going to set off to better understand how the planet worked, whilst also finding faster trading routes. They were seen as the astronauts of their time. Francis immediately pushed for one of these roles. Because of the reputation he had within the Navy, he was one of the first picks to join Captain William Parry. Parry was going to the Arctic to find a route over the top of Canada in order to get to Asia faster than anyone else. In 1821, after lobbying for funds, they set sail. Francis served as a midshipman on board the HMS Fury in the two-ship venture. These ships were bomber ships, which were not originally designed for the harsh conditions of the Arctic. They had been modified, but could not really compete with the power of nature, which did not want them to pass. When conditions became too tough to pass through the proposed straits, they were forced to turn back and go to England. On this trip, Francis really propelled himself forward as a more than capable sailor. Three years later, Francis climbed back onto the Fury and went for a second attempt at finding a route to Asia through the ice. Again, nature showed a reluctance for their mission to succeed and the Fury got stuck in extreme ice. The men on board had to leave the ship, somewhere near Somerset Island, and await rescue. As their supplies began to run low, out of desperation, the men were forced to eat the leather from their boots in order to be able to eat it all. Francis, however, was noted as having performed a remarkable role in keeping morale high and focused on rationing food whilst they could. He would often lead groups of men on hunting missions in order to search for signs of life which might get them home. Because of this, when they did eventually get rescued, Francis was promoted to lieutenant, one of the few Irishmen ever to do so. Later in the same year as the failed second attempt at crossing over the top of Canada, Francis set off for a third attempt. Again it failed. It wasn't all failure for Francis, however, as because of his efforts and the research he himself conducted on each of the voyages, he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society and was recognised as an important figure in both the world of sea voyages and science. In 1831, Francis returned to war as he was stationed off the coast of Portugal during the Liberal Wars. Much of the war passed him by, although he is credited as having kept the morale of his men high during the toughest times at sea. In 1835, Francis was sent on a very different mission to the ones he was used to. But because of the trust the Navy had in him, he was selected as one of the few who might get the job done. He was sent back to the Arctic to find 12 lost British whaling ships. Because of his efforts in the mission, he was promoted to the rank of commander in 1837. Two years later, in 1839, 
Francis joined his friend, James Clark Ross, on a four-year voyage to explore Antarctica on two ships, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror. This was a scientific mission designed to better understand what was on the South Pole. On this mission, Francis once again excelled and discovered a wide range of creatures which man had never seen before. He began to note how the water moved differently here and began to investigate why. When he returned and published his papers, Francis was immediately elected as a Fellow of the Royal Society, again one of a small number of Irishmen to do so. Much of what we understand today about the Earth's magnetic pull, the movement of the Earth's plates and magnetism generally comes from the work of Francis Crozier. Although at the time he was seldom recognised for this because he was Irish. Many of those who wrote about the hero of science and the navy at the time would fail to mention he was from Ireland or would falsify his educational record to hide the fact he had grown up in Ireland. In 1845, France's big moment in life came. He was to join the Franklin expedition to finally find the Northwest Passage over Canada through the Arctic. Franklin was well liked by all in the Navy, but wasn't massively trusted due to mistakes he had made on previous missions. He had been seen to be too conservative and nervous to make decisions and was often indecisive, but was a very capable sailor. Francis had asked could he lead the mission, but was told by the heads of the Navy, Francis, you're Irish, how would that look? Instead, he was put in charge of the second ship on the mission. The two ships were familiar to Francis. He had worked on them in his adventures to the South Pole. They were the Erebus and the Terror. Francis was given the reins of the Terror. The two ships were the most advanced of their kind at the time, and the only two the Navy would trust to do the mission. They were originally built as bombing ships, but repurposed for the ship's exploration. Their fronts were reinforced with pointed timber in order to break through ice. They were also one of the few ships in the world to be given steam engines to power through the ice. They were also equipped with central heating, iron sheeting and had one of the world's first diving suits on board for clearing ice from propellers. They were carrying three years of tinned food. This was another new addition to sailing as food would not go off during the years whilst it remained in the cans. As there wasn't much living in the area they were travelling to because of the harsh conditions there it was important that they were not required to fish or hunt or scavenge. Francis and the ships headed out to explore the last remaining bit of earth left to be explored. The early days of their voyage came with some issues. After a month at sea, the crew of 134 men arrived to Greenland for a supplies pickup, and many of the crew were complaining of headaches, dizziness and ill thoughts. As this stop would be the last visit the ship would have to the known civilised world before it reached the destination, it was decided that some of the ill would be left there and five men were left for medical reasons. The crew also left letters to be sent home, which stated morale was high and they had great confidence they would be the first to successfully pass through the Northwest Passage into Asia. They also stated that the officers had already started collecting their scientific data. For the first time, they experienced aurora borealis and solar winds. They also experienced what appeared to be three suns in the sky, 
a trick being played in them by the climate and the reflections of ice. Francis marvelled at each of these things, and being one of the first to experience them was the equivalent of being the first man on the moon at the time. He noted, however, that the magnetic fields were doing something very unexpected to their compasses. The magnetic fields of the North Pole were causing them to swirl regularly, change the point of north, and no two compasses would point in the same direction for any period of time. As they crossed into Canada, they relied heavily on the streams of the freezing rivers to guide them. After the first year at sea, there was no word received of the ship's status. They had planned to spend at least one winter on the ice, so this wasn't unusual. Given the stocks in the ships, there was no real issue for the men on board. Then, when the second year passed, and there was still no word from the ship, people began to become worried. At this point, they should have at least come into contact with the people living on the western side of Canada. Franklin's wife went to the head of the Navy and pleaded for a rescue mission, but to her frustration she was told no. The official response was, They have unmeasurable confidence in Franklin, Francis and the men on board the ships. She went to the wealthy members of society and appealed directly to them to help her find her husband and the two ships. Charles Dickens, the famous writer, was one of the men who listened to her calls. This pressure from the upper classes reversed the original decision and rescue ships were sent out. Where had the two boats gone? Where were the men? In the first year of the expedition, the ships had become lost and got stuck in ice. As this was part of the plan, the men waited on the ice for it to loosen so that they could get moving again. They would have to wait until the end of winter to do so. When things began to loosen after a few months, they started up the steam engines and powered through the ice. Unfortunately though, what they discovered was the steam engines only had enough fuel for 12 days and the weight of the ship's alterations and the engine itself meant that they were burning through the fuel at an alarming rate. Given the lack of wind in the area they were in, they could not get the sails to fly right. They managed to get the boats free using large saws and dynamite but they literally had to cut each piece of ice out, piece by piece, in order to let the boats through. When one would get free, the other would freeze up again. While stuck here, they lost the lives of three men on board. Today, three headstones can be found where the ships were stuck, as the men on board decided to have a proper burial for their friends. The bodies of these men had frozen in their graves, and when they were discovered, they were tested to see what they might have died of. There was evidence of lead poisoning. The cans which had stored the food for their journey were soldered with lead, and this leaked into everything the men ate. The effects of this were confusion, memory and concentration issues, volatile mood swings, extreme headaches, and sufferers would often start seeing things that weren't really there, or they imagined creatures and monsters surrounding them. The surviving men managed to move a few miles until winter once again returned and the ships became stuck for the second time. Before they got stuck however, they had to decide which way to go when they came to King William Land, 
north or south. They didn't realise it was actually an island. Francis did suggest it might have been an island, given the shape of the land, and he was more than familiar with the geographical outlines of an island from his time in the South Pacific. He was immediately shut down by Franklin. Francis again disagreed with Franklin's decision to go above the land. Francis suggested that going south would be a much calmer route as the island would protect them from the opposing currents. Franklin's route took them right into what is recognised today as the most dangerous waters around the Arctic. The wild river and ice hurtled down the streams towards the sea, between the sea and the Arctic were the Erebus and the Terror. As they entered the stream, they immediately realised it was the wrong way to go, but Franklin, being a stubborn man, insisted they power on and keep going. Francis continued to plead with him to go back. Just a few miles in, they became stuck for the second time. After using their dynamite and having damaged the ships in the first time they got stuck, Francis insisted that they were to abandon the ships and walk to the nearest port towns in order to get them home safely and call the mission a failure. As this was Franklin's last chance to find the new route, he refused and they set up camp on the ice. They waited again for the ice to melt and they planned to spend another winter on the ice and would leave when the summer came back. In 1849, four years after the ships had left England, the first sign of life was found. Near the north of King William's Land, a rescue team found a beacon of rocks with a note. It stated the ships had remained stuck on the ice for the winters of 1846 and 1847. The summer never came and the ice never melted. The note also stated that Franklin was still in charge and all was going well. The paper had a small note scribbled on the bottom of it though, in Francis's handwriting and it stated just a few months after the first note was written that Franklin had died along with 23 other men and Francis now led the men and they were going to abandon the ships and begin walking south to civilization. A 250 mile walk with no directional points of reference. They carried what they could and set off on foot. At this stage, they had become suspicious of the canned food and began hunting and fishing where they could. Without much life out there, the options were limited though and there is evidence that they did catch some fish and seals. These animals from the region carried diseases the men's bodies could not deal with and they became very sick, many of them dying. They buried who they could and kept moving. The natives described how they saw a group of men become smaller and smaller as they pulled some supplies behind them on a makeshift raft weighing about 8,000 pounds. Pulling this would lead them to sweat heavily and this would freeze instantly on their skin due to the extreme colds. They were now also suffering from scurvy and would have been in agonising pain walking. The other issue they would have had was bears. They were being hunted themselves. At this point, out of desperation, Francis gave the order, if anyone falls, they must leave them. Carrying the sick was becoming too much of a burden, and they were beginning to save themselves. 
the rescue mission, hoping for some clues from the natives, were told that there was a campsite with 30 corpses on it, but they did not go near the white men. They were afraid of them, as they could see them eating the flesh of the other white men. Cannibalism, as a means to survive, had set into the group. When word of this came back, the British were outraged that the men had resorted to this, and they were publicly criticised and used it as an excuse to stop sending rescue parties. From that point on, it wasn't known what happened to Francis and the remaining men. That is, until 1993, when bones were found by a group of scientists working on Camellium Island. They found cut marks on the bones, indicating that meat was cut off them, and because of the fact the bodies were totally frozen, they could not tell if the men were still alive when they were cut into. The location of these bodies, however, displayed that, almost by accident, Francis had found the passage they had been looking to, as the camp was near the entrance to the Northwest Passage. Back in 1859, some items were found when looking for clues as to what happened. About 30 miles short of the port where Francis thought he might get rescued, a local tribe had some coat buttons and the story. The coat buttons were those of an officer, shined and proper. The message the locals had for the now private rescue team was, My name is Francis Crozier. I'm born of County Down in Ireland. I led the men of Erebus in terror to what I hoped would have been safety. We are gone. I am the last of the Franklin expedition. Please don't come searching. Everything on this land wishes us dead. In 2014 and 2016, the shipwrecks of both ships were finally found. The ice had overcome them during the third winter and had crushed them under the sea. Today's music was written, performed and produced by Ryan O'Halloran. We the Irish is an Ireland Loves production. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us to create more, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash we the Irish. Or nasanam dum, gurmagut slaninish.